Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the United States, Australia, Brazil, Armenia, Canada, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead right winger from Nicaragua. Starting out in the United States, this weekend Donald Trump made an openly, incredibly, and honestly even surprising to me anti-Semitic comment. And yeah, this is a surprising level of anti-Semitism, even to somebody who studies fascism for his job. This weekend, Donald Trump was giving a message, ostensibly in celebration of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year celebration. And in this message, Trump went full anti-Semitic by blaming Jewish people for destroying the United States, the quote here is Trump, Trump said, and this is a direct quote from former President Donald Trump. Just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel because you believed in false narratives. Let's hope you learn from your mistake and make better choices. Now, that's really disgusting. It's horribly, indefensibly anti-Semitic. Donald Trump and his office have declined to comment about it entirely because they don't want to talk about how horribly and crazily anti-Semitic it is. It's playing directly into extremely standard anti-Semitic tropes in which Jewish people are responsible for your country's problems, like despite the fact that Jewish voters are way, way, way less that, you know, it's like 2% of the United States population. This is also in keeping with the rights account of Jewish people in the United States who don't vote for Republicans, that they are ignoring their own interests by not being Israeli nationalists? Pretty disgusting. Continuing on with news from the United States, Ray Epps has pled guilty to a misdemeanor involving his participation in the January 6th attempted coup by Donald Trump and his allies in January of 2021. Now, if you haven't heard the name Ray Epps before, then that's because you're uh, ear has not been deep in the right-wing echo chamber since January 6th. Epps has been at the center of a series of conspiracy theories purported by the extreme right-wing. Specifically, Ray Epps is one of the people that the extreme right-wing used as an example for why they thought that January 6th was a false flag operation. You know, they tried to defend it by saying like, oh, well, he was an FBI informant or he worked with the FBI, and that that means that the whole thing was just like, fake and designed to discredit Donald Trump and his allies, right? That's their claim. They got to this basically because he was initially on a list of people that the FBI was looking for and then removed from that list, but then of course was put back on that list, right? So what they said was like, oh, well, he was removed from the list because the FBI took him off of it because he was an informant or because he was a plant or, you know, because he was a deep undercover agent who was trying to get people to engage in these kinds of violent, you know, insurrectionist secessionist activities. And, you know, they, they, they thought that this was proof of this whole big federal conspiracy that would take responsibility away from themselves. His sentencing should silence people on the right wing, but it probably won't because the extreme conspiracy folks are just really gung-ho about this. Moving on to Australia, there has been a stabbing attack at the Australian National University. The stabber, a man named Alex Ophel, stabbed two other students, both of them women, at the university's campus over the weekend. There has been no motive released yet about his particular activities, and he did attack two male students as well, 
But I mentioned this because when I saw this headline, I was like, oh, well, probably he was a man and his victims were women. And I was right. And that's because a lot of these attacks are ultimately motivated by misogyny and by sexism. You know, incels commit attacks like this all the time. And so whether or not it turns out that this particular attack was motivated by misogyny or sexism, it remains the case that that is often true in these kinds of situations. And for that reason, I feel justified in bringing it up to you. And if it turns out that this guy left a manifesto somewhere or that he was on 4chan or 8chan or whatever, then unfortunately I would feel not vindicated because of course it's disgusting that these things are normal enough that I assumed that it was the case. But at least I would feel accurate, I guess. Moving on to Brazil, Mauro Cid, the aide to Jair Bolsonaro, has formally admitted that he participated in money laundering under the aegis of the president of Brazil in the United States. Specifically, he has admitted on record to the Brazilian authorities that he sold luxury watches, which Bolsonaro had received as gifts from diplomats from Saudi Arabia and Bahrain to oil-rich Middle Eastern countries, and that he sold those luxury watches at a mall in Pennsylvania, and that he then handed Bolsonaro the cash. Specifically, the way that it worked was that Sid got the money, put the money in a bank account in the United States that was run by one of Sid's relatives, and then that money was then taken out and then handed to Bolsonaro. That's just like money laundering. Now, Sid claims that he thinks that this was legal. However, he also thought that it was something that he needed to, like, confess to authorities in order to receive a plea bargain. So I don't think that it probably was. Honestly, I'm really curious about how this is going to play out legally. Like, does this mean that Bolsonaro is potentially chargeable for money laundering in the United States? Would Biden do that? Would, I mean, would... Would Lula want Biden to do that? I, I, I don't know. Uh, that's super fascinating. I'm very curious. This also permanently tarnishes Bolsonaro's reputation as a squeaky clean anti-corruption crusader guy. Right? Remember, he ran against the Socialist Party. He ran against the Workers' Party, the party of Lula and Lula's predecessor, Jilma Rousseff, and uh, Adagi, the person that Bolsonaro ran against. He ran against them largely on an anti-corruption platform, at least in large part because of an anti-corruption platform related to the car wash corruption scandal that emerged under Lula's presidency. What this means is that Bolsonaro is, of course, just as liable to this kind of corruption as any other politician. That's no news to those of us who have been critical of Bolsonaro since the beginning, but it might be news for some of the people who were his supporters since the beginning. Moving on to Armenia, many human rights organizations and also international organizations are warning of the potential for a genocide in Armenia. This is due to an ongoing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in disputed territory between these two countries, both of which used to be Soviet Socialist Republics, as in parts of the USSR. These two countries located in the Caucasus are both relatively small and relatively isolated and extremely ethnically mixed in a sort of like, you know, Balkans type way. This means that there has been ongoing conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia over this disputed territory, which Azerbaijan is slowly conquering. 
However, there are a lot of ethnic Armenians left in this territory. And international aid organizations, human rights groups, are alleging that the beginnings of a genocide are already being laid in this region. The Azerbaijani forces are assaulting people, they are stopping necessary aid to civilians, they're detaining and even hurting civilians based on their ethnic differences. Now, a ceasefire has been agreed to between Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Armenian separatists in this region, but that doesn't necessarily bode well for the Armenians who are left in territory that eventually becomes part of Azerbaijan. It might mean instead that they are left isolated and without any advocates on their side in their new country. Alternatively, they could be forced to leave, be displaced from their homes, which is itself part of the definition of genocide. But if they were displaced, where are they going to go? They, their homes are there. You know, it's not as if there are easy places for them to go otherwise. So we just have to keep an eye on this ongoing situation between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Moving on to Canada, there has been a massive anti-trans rights rally in Canada, specifically in Toronto. The march is called the One Million March for Children. It's the numerals one and four, you know, one million march and the numeral four children. Allegedly, this is a parental rights march. You know, it's about the encroachment, so they say, of trans rights and gender critical ideology among children in Canada. And specifically, they're saying that sexual and gender unsafe ideas are being spread around in Canadian schools. Their claim is that what they want is parental consent for education about gender critical ideas in Canadian schools. But really, what that is, is a cover, right? This is a dog whistle. What they want is parental control over sex and gender education in the same way that racist parents want parental control over discussing the legacy of enslavement, for example. Or they want parental control over telling kids whether or not it's okay to be homosexual or whether it's okay to be trans. Specifically, they're trying to prevent trans education. They're trying to prevent queer accepting education in Canadian schools, and they are marching in order to get what they want. They imagine, essentially, that there is an age when kids are too young to learn about homosexuality, even just as a form of love, not as a form of sexual activity alongside when students do learn about sexual activity in school, you know, in middle school in the United States, you know, somewhere between the ages of 10 and 15, exactly when puberty is happening. They imagine that there's a time when kids are too young to learn about gender, but not really. That's not really what they mean, right? They don't think kids are ever too young to learn about gender, right? These are not parents who are gender abolitionists who are saying that you shouldn't gender a person until they're able to choose their own. They want kids to learn about gender. They just only want them to learn about normative gender, right? They just don't want kids to learn about non-normative gender. And they want public schools in Canada to enforce their specific vision of how gender and sexuality work. Finally, I'm going to close out this week like I do every week with See You in Hell a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am talking about a guy named Anastasio Somoza de Baile, or Tachito, known after his father, whose name was Tacho and who was also Anastasio Somoza. Tachito Somoza, uh, who I'm just going to be calling Somoza for the purposes of this, of this message, is the last of the long-standing Somoza dynasty to rule Nicaragua. 
So Tachito Somoza was born in 1925 to the already extremely powerful Somoza family. His father was a military leader with ties to the United States. He had spent time working in the military and going to school in the United States. And his father used his position in the military to achieve dictatorship over the country beginning in the 1930s. As a dictator in World War II, he used his power to get to take all the land in Nicaragua from the very small but extremely rich and specifically land-rich German Nicaraguan families, which meant that the Somozas were simultaneously in charge of the Nicaraguan government and also held most of the Nicaraguan land privately. This made the Somoza dynasty of Nicaragua pretty much the poster child for a banana republic, right? So this meant that Anastasio Somoza de Baile, Tachito, the guy I'm talking about today, had a very privileged upbringing, right? He was the son of the president and was also a member of the country's richest family. So this guy that we're talking about, Tachito Somoza, went on to be educated in the U.S. just as his father had, and interestingly, also attended the same military academy as TV host Stephen Colbert's uncle did, which meant that this guy, Samosa, and Colbert's mother went on, like, dates together because he was friends with her brother? Fucking bizarre. Totally crazy. So Tachito Samosa went on to go to West Point in the United States, where he graduated uh, very well in his class. When he got back to Nicaragua in 1946, he was fluent in English and was appointed to Chief of Staff of the National Guard, which is the army in Nicaragua. After his father's assassination, Tachito Somoza's brother became president, a guy who's also named Anastasio Somoza, except he's Luis Anastasio Somoza. So this meant that Tachito Somoza was deeply involved in the country's government still, and after his brother's death, he himself became president in 1967. He was the third Somoza, a nearly unbroken rulership of the family since the 1930s. Anastasio Somoza Tachito uh, ruled with an iron fist and was specifically intent on destroying any of the domestic opposition to the Somoza dynasty, which had been increasing recently in part because of the growing Sandinista rebellion. The Sandinistas were a rebellious group of leftists in Nicaragua named after a leftist sort of populist guerrilla leader whose name was Sandino. Anastasio Somoza Chito stepped down as president in 1972 shortly to rule behind the scenes as the leader of the military and then went back to the leadership in December of that year due to an earthquake and a national emergency. He was re-elected as president in 1974. Meanwhile, though, increasing support for the rebels, the Sandinistas, meant that he was, you know, losing his hold on power. Somoza was eventually toppled by the Sandinistas and their allies in 1979, in part as the result of the loss of the support of the United States in the form of the Carter administration's withdrawal of support from their government because of human rights violations. Somoza fled to Miami, like most right-wing Latin American leaders do, and he also took with him a massive amount of money and other precious reserves from the Nicaraguan government. This left the Sandinista government with debt and very little national reserve in their bank. After this, Somoza left the United States for Paraguay. He lived in Asuncion, Paraguay, under the protection of the Paraguayan dictator Alfred Stroessner. However, he didn't get to live in Paraguay all that long because he was assassinated 
by Sandinista and Argentine rebels in Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay, this week in history, September 17th, 1980. The rebels killed him with machine gun fire to his car, and they also shot a rocket launcher at it and hit the car and blew it up. So, Anastasio Somoza de Baile, we will see you in hell. Right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out on all one word. That's where you can reach me at Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. I'm also on Twitter at fascism15. I'm on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F-F-A-S-C. All right. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.